Welcome to episode 112 of the Oral <laughs> Argument Podcast. <laughs> well, this sounded terrible. Here's the way to start. Okay, here we uh, go. He, I, here's why I'm really glad we'd record these on Fridays. Yeah. Because these conversations, like today, these conversations are often so good and rich and deep that my mind is so blown <laughs> that I, I need until Monday to be a functioning person again. <sighs> That's why it's good to do these on a Friday. When someone, when a conversation is like, wow and that's what this one's like for me like that was amazing i'm here with joe miller uh, it's joe, Friday. <laughs> joe, joe who's our guest this week simon stern at the university of toronto law faculty all right there you are it's a miracle that we're talking to someone in toronto in real time yeah exactly we what? are in the same time zone by the way so that's <laughs> uh, yeah that's one of the many miracles of toronto that it's actually on est but Simon, of course, has to pay for Skype calls in loonies, and we pay in dollars, right? <laughs> Is that how that works? Unfortunately, <laughs> the loonie is worth so much less than the dollar that it's a trivial cost. So. Excellent. Yeah. Nice, nice. So, uh, Simon, one thing that I think is there are many things that I could say, never having talked to Simon, there are many things I could say about Simon that <laughs> prove he's awesome, okay. right? And just one of them is uh, that he is the editor, as I understand it, of the second volume of the new Oxford edition of the Blackstones, uh, Blackstone, Wait. right? So I'm, I'm delighted to hear you mention that. That has been the labor of a gaggle of legal historians for more than five years. It just finally came out in August, and we were delighted to see it in print. Um, a bunch of us have been working on it. Uh, um, Wolf Prest, who's the world's expert on Blackstone and is at Adelaide, headed up the, the project, and then there was a different editor for each volume. Uh, um, David Lemmings, who's at Adelaide, did volume one. I did the second volume on property law. Tom Galanis, who's at the Iowa Law School, did volume three, and Ruth Paley at the History of Parliament Trust did the criminal law volume. And as I say, we've had a series of meetings, all sorts of editorial things had to be worked out, questions related to the text, the eight editions that Blackstone published in his lifetime, and the changes that he made to each. And it is great to see it out after all this time. It must be. And so I, I feel like, in a sense, you caught the snitch. You got 150 points. Game over. Like, <laughs> you're declared the winner. Um, but we still have to talk. But but <laughs> this is just an awesome. I think it's awesome. Well, so congrats. Thanks, uh, I um I should also mention that the volume was very generously supported by funds from the American Society for Legal History. Oh, cool. And is there going to is this the kind of thing that the BBC is going to? It sounds like a BBC series that I'll find on Netflix eventually. <laughs> Blackstone, right? Blackstone. Blackstone. I mean, I don't know if it's adaptable. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. Perhaps. Perhaps there's <laughs> enough drama to make a good kind of, you know, right. uh, you know, kind of a, a binge-worthy Netflix series out of this. Speaking of drama and narrative. Yes. Exa- well, absolutely. apropos, apropos. Uh, how do we want to get into this? I mean, it, it seems more fraught than a normal episode because oh, I feel not? because I feel like there should be some narrative structure to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're for self-conscious about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, Simon, how did you get interested in this project? Well, I've been interested in these questions for a while. As, as you'll have discerned from my faculty biography, I went to graduate school in English before I went to law school. And when I was in law school and, and ever since, I've been fascinated by the way legal academics talk about narrative often in what strikes me as sort of a bland way, you know, they'll, they'll assert that 
uh, every case is a narrative or every decision is a narrative or that uh, there's some essential narrative structure to legal argument. And you, you feel like there's a there there. There are some very important insights, but they often use the word narrative in a way that doesn't seem to capitalize on anything that's narratively significant about the material that they're describing. It's as if the word narrative merely licenses the conclusion that uh, it's therefore open to interpretation. And what they're really interested in is delivering an interpretation, not the narratively distinctive features of the material that they're discussing. So, so in a way, and, and this isn't, I mean, this, this kind of critique um, and the way that you've just made it um, doesn't seem to be in the piece exactly, but, but I mean, it, it, in its strongest form. So maybe what you're saying in part is that to assert something as a narrative is basically a move in order to open up some legal contest to dispute, right? Uh, to remove it from the idea that there is some certainty, whether it's someone who's claiming, hey, there's a, you know, the, the statute just means this and it has to apply this way, or this is just what happened. And then a counter move to that kind of certainty is to say that, well, all legal claims are really part of a narrative and therefore are subject to narrative, interpretive techniques, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're kind of off and running in dispute. Is that is that a too strong version of what you're saying? No, no, I couldn't agree more enthusiastically with what you just said. I mean, it seems to me that to license that approach, which would, of course, be familiar to many, many legal academics, all you really need to say is it's open to interpretation or it's told from an interested perspective or it represents uh, a bias or an ideology that could be countered by another in other words, there are any number of ways of describing that that don't require recourse to the concept of narrative at all, but it's become sort of a default move to use the term narrative in order to motivate precisely the set of conclusions that you just delineated. So if you're trying, instead of motivating those conclusions, if instead you're trying to say something that, that illuminates what's going on in a context... Um, and you use the term narrative, what might someone who studies that from within, you know, the, the English liter literature tradition or some other tradition, what would they tell us narrative is that's not just, you know, a crowbar to, you know, loosen up some other point <laughs> I want to make? What is Th narrative? Thanks. Those are, those are precisely the questions that I'm interested in. So it seems to me, normally in literary studies, people use the word narrative or talk about the study of narrative because they're interested in a set of relations that exist in narratives, a relation of a narrator to a story, to the characters, to the reader, um, questions about narrative structure and why certain kinds of narrative devices are used. So there are questions not just about plot, which is what, among legal academics, narrative is normally used to refer to, but a whole set of relations about how the story is presented to us, why it's presented in that way, and what are the various um, nodes in the presentation of the narrative, from the narrator to the setting to the characters to the chronology to the reader, that are all in play and standing in a definable relation to each other. And, and I guess you know one of the reasons that setting aside whether you know we think about our brains and in, in in a cognitive science sense as essentially narrative uh if we if we set all that aside and we just say okay well some things we can talk about in a narrative way and other things maybe in other ways law seems particularly i don't know conducive to the narrative explanation because it involves conflict at all levels and and one thing that you kind of address in here are the different levels at which narration may or may not be occurring and for example you know the 
trial level where you you know the essence of that is a conflict that's why law exists right is to is to resolve these conflicts so you have two factual well you have uh you have one factual story that has unfolded and led at least two entities into some conflict and we are now going to talk about that conflict and resolve it and so one attitude may be that is inherently narrative to the extent that you're going to talk about a conflict and resolve it and then the other sense in which this occurs i guess is uh, at the level of um, law, right? The, the, we're going to talk about how the doctrine evolves, and there's this like there's this story that law is trying to tell. I tell it to my students sometimes at the Supreme Court discussion group when we're talking about like how to resolve these kind of conflicting stories. That that there's a story the law is trying to tell. If you're like a good lawyer, and 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 part of your brief should be trying to kind of complete that story or tell it. And you refer to that in your article this this attitude toward the craft of law. But then there's also appeal, and you kind of usefully distinguish appeal and maybe assimilated a bit more with that latter type of narrative that I just talked about. Um, But another way of seeing what's going on at appeal is that we're we're now talking about a different story, a different potential narrative. It's one of a trial that went bad, right? And we're telling the story. The actors are now different. It's now judges and lawyers and arguments and juries. And we're talking about that different story. Um, So I I, kind of throw all that out there to, to suggest that when we think about the business of law and what's going on, we see lots of conflicts at different levels. And it just seems very natural that to talk about those conflicts, we would slip into a narrative mode and might even ask whether there's any other way to do it. But of course, you're much more careful than that in this piece and ascribe certain ideas to what you call narrative and other ideas to what you call quasi-narrative and and I guess other things which aren't narrative at all. How would you, all right, so I've laid a bunch of stuff out there, but how would you how would yeah, you deal and, with all that? Yeah. So, so all of that's very helpful. Clearly, from the perspective of the um, the litigants and the lawyers, prior to the rendering of a trial decision, we're living forward in a conflict that has yet to be resolved, and it's experienced narratively in precisely that way, with many of the features that make literary narratives appealing to readers. Namely, we don't yet know the outcome. There are any number of details concrete details that might turn out to be significant in uh, arriving at the conclusion. So it seems to me that you're precisely right in saying that we reach naturally for the term of narrative when we're talking about the conflicts that give rise to litigation, precisely because that's how they're experienced as they're moving forward through the litigation process by everyone who's involved. The complication, it seems to me, is that because we think of that as narrative, we also tend somewhat unthinkingly to say that, therefore, the decision itself is an inherently narrative form. But it seems to me that by the time it's been reduced to writing and a conclusion has been articulated by the judge, the document through which we encounter that conclusion is has many fewer narratively compelling features than we'll have found in the trial process if we could have been watching it. Uh, by sitting in the courtroom or reading the newspaper coverage or reading one of those sort of standalone histories of the trial that, that we find after the fact. What the judge is attempting to do, even if, even if it's just at the trial level, is rationalize a legal conclusion. And to that extent, a lot of the conflict will have been purged out. And that's especially true in the analytical section of the judgment, it seems to me. And then as we move up to the appellate level, where the facts matter somewhat less, and there's somewhat greater emphasis on doctrine. 
whether it's a trial that went bad or a trial that went right and one party is simply foolish and appealing, it's, it's available to the appellate court either to bless entirely the theory that the trial judge chose or to adopt a new one, which will then serve to reframe to some extent the facts that the trial judge found, but within a new legal framework now articulated by the appellate court. And of course, as you also suggest, it's available to the court to tell a story of how a doctrine did evolve or is evolving and now needs to be adapted. Um, it's also available to us as observers, as academics, or just as interested members of the public to tell a story about how law is evolving in a certain way. And to the extent that those stories are available to us, those are stories that we can only gain a perspective on by looking at a series of cases. So what I've tried to do in this piece is to confine myself for the moment to questions of narrative as they're available to us within a particular legal decision. There's, of course, much to be said about narrative and law more generally, about the evolution of legal ideas, changes in doctrines as they evolve over time, but in part simply to keep the argument um, relatively constrained and to think about the particular kinds of narrative techniques that apply within an iteration of a story, a telling of a story, I've required myself here just to talk about narrative in a decision, as opposed to narratives as we can discern them across a series of decisions. Hearing you describe it, it seems to me that one contrast we could draw, and maybe this is a reflection of the way that that judging uh, in the United States has become relative to its 19th century counterpart, more bureaucratized and professionalized. But but I feel like there's this implicit contrast with old uh, English practice and old American practice of, uh, although I think more in England than here, of sort of appellate judges announcing as individual seriatim their their judgment. They do it orally. There's a court reporter there. This is at an era when court reports are are literally like a form of journalism where you've got someone in the room who's sort of making notes about what this judge said, then what that judge said. That. And so the appeal is a, a, a chapter that's much more like the trial where you've got there, – there is something unanticipated. There is – even when all the judges are done speaking, you, the practicing lawyer, has to try to piece together some common thread that unites all of the judges who voted in favor of the result that, you, that you're trying to take now. Do you see a, a sort of has, – has American appellate judging been drained, even historically speaking, relative to sort of the 19th century? Yes, I think that's a wonderful observation, and there's a lot there. So uh, what I might do preliminarily, it, uh, it gives me an opportunity to bring out more distinctively what I see as the two fundamental differences between the kinds of literary narrative that we enjoy immersing ourselves in. And uh, um, when, when people talk about being lost in a book, there, there are certain features that make that particularly inviting. And to contrast that against what we typically encounter in a modern judicial opinion. So I just say at the beginning of the piece, normally we enjoy reading fiction because we don't know how it's going to end. The, the cognitive pleasure of reading fiction involves partly speculating about what's going to happen and partly about a set of identifications or perspectives that we obtain on the characters in the narrative. It strikes me that today those are almost completely absent from any judicial opinion that you're likely to read, whether it's a trial-level judgment 
or an appellate judgment. People sometimes tell me, no, that's wrong. I actually enjoy reading decisions and wondering what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And to that, I say, well, um, I, I don't find that entirely persuasive because it seems to me that it's impossible for us as readers of judgments to pry away that analytical perspective where we're always evaluating it. Do I agree with this analysis? Do I think they should have done something else here? Am I content with the way that they summarize this case and apply it? Whereas those are not questions that we're normally asking ourselves. That is, the, the analogous questions uh, are, are not analogous questions that we would normally ask as we read a literary narrative. We might ask, do I like this character? Um, can I predict what this person's going to do next? But, but those are very different questions, even when they're evaluative, from the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves and that we always keep in mind with our evaluative lens uh, um, applied. When, when we're reading legal decisions, it seems to me. And that, I think, is exactly why you can't be lost in a decision the way you can be lost in a book. So to pick up on, on your historical question, I think that's exactly right. To the extent that we know in advance how it's going to turn out, or even if we don't know in advance how the decision's going to turn out, but it's not written in the way that seeks to incite the reader forward, in the way that literary narrative does, it'll share the, the 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 contemporary legal decision will share those bureaucratic features that purge away narrative energy, um, the the forward thrust that's motivated by uncertainty, guessing about what's going to happen next, uh, and and I think there's there's a large set of features that one might associate with very uh, with Weberian ideas about bureaucracy. That have become very conventional features of modern decision writing that all conspire against that kind of uncertainty. The, the disaggregation of every problem into a small set of components, each of which can be inspected methodically um, so that we feel that the judge has comprehensively examined everything in the right order, added them together. That's not the way that novelists normally put together problems in fiction. In, in fiction, many balls are in the air. There's, there's no sense that one thing must be completely explained before we move on to the next. So I, I think that what you say about the move from, a, from an oral association with the giving of reasons, the one that, is, um, that we expect to encounter through the written form and everything that comes with the written form, that is characteristic of modern decision writing. I think you're right to say that uh, there was a significant change in the American practice over, say, the last 100, 150 years. And I think it's been true in, in England and Canada as well. And one of the things that you point to is in literature, part of the pleasure comes from extraneous facts that add to verisimilitude, that make you feel immersed in a world. And and that that often maybe is not what you see in in legal writing, although I I, I wonder uh, about that. And and you you point out that in uh, you know dicta in the law, when we move to the level of narrative and law at the at the legal level, doctrinal level, that you that you do see um, some of that. But even prior to that, I I kind of want to think about whether well, I, I'm just thinking of kinds of literature or instances of books and film in which you know you start with the ending. Right. And, and certainly in more modern literature, this is, you know, playing with timelines is something that is now ubiquitous. You start with the ending and the whole plot is about how we got to that point, either, you know, 
purely on a plot basis uh, or that the story is really about the evolutions of certain internal points of view. Like Memento is sort of the ne plus ultra of this, the the movie from about a decade ago where where he's got a memory problem and it's sort of the the entire movie is about the memory problem. It's about how you got to that end point and and you're trying to figure out like on a plot basis, how do you get there? But there are other, you know, I'm trying to think of good examples and I, of course, I'm, they're fleeing my head. I think Infinite Jest may be one, but certainly where you know how it ends and you know how the character got to this point, but. Uh, you know that the character got to this point, but you don't know how the character got to this point. And so we're really trying to explain kind of how the mind evolves of that character under maybe even familiar factual situations. And that does seem to me to be somewhat analogous to, say, the uh, an opinion of the United States Supreme Court that begins, you know, to, we yeah. affirm the judgment below. And you're like, well, okay, there are a bunch of ways you could get there. I wonder how right. they get there. And Simon, you talk in the paper about causation as a key part of plot. For It wasn't Totoro, but it was the other person. Who was the other person? Um, so um, uh, uh, um, Forster has an account of causation and mm-hmm. plot. Yeah, and, yeah, Forster, yeah. And, um, and so does Recur. And I, I, I find both of those accounts very helpful. So, so these are actually two separate points. And, and I'd love to pick up just on the point about um, differently narrated or differently chronologically organized narratives. Martin Amos's novel *Time Times Arrow* would be another example. There's a whole array of them, and people now studying what they call unnatural narratology have gone through a wonderful catalog of literary examples that are either um, where either the story begins at the end or it's all sort of mixed up, as in um, a, a novel called *Hopscotch*. Um, so, so there are many ways of disorganizing the narrative, sometimes by by putting the end at the beginning. A useful way to think about that, I think, is through a framework that was articulated back in the early 80s by um, a a pair of scholars called Brewer and Lichtenstein. So they said that there were three basic narrative schemas, as they put it. Uh, A schema dictated by curiosity, one dictated by suspense, and one for which they say neither of the above applies, and <laughs> it's banal and boring, and 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 can hold very little interest. So I would say that on their schema, the suspense structure is the one where you begin at the beginning, and at each turn you wonder what's going to happen next. The curiosity structure, I would say, is the literary form that you've been alluding to. So we know how it ends, but how did they get there? I'm intensely curious about how they got there. The legal form, it seems to me, in the instance where the end, where the conclusion is articulated at the beginning, might seem like the curiosity structure. But I actually think it's the third one, not the curiosity structure, precisely because it's conventional not just to explain what the conclusion is, but to say something at the outset about um, what the reason is, even if in purely summary form, so that. Any curiosity that remains really is, is just about putting the flesh on the bones of an explanation that's already been supplied at the beginning. To think of a literary form as doing that, that is um, not just as articulating the conclusion at the end, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 the conclusion at the beginning, but also dispelling uncertainty about how you got to the conclusion. We probably could think of some literary examples that, that fit that description. But I'd venture to say that novelists or or short story writers who do that are doing it precisely in order to challenge the idea that there ought to be anything curiosity provoking at all about narrative at all. 
Yeah. Do and you think this? I mean, is this like? Is that because it's bad literature, or or is it, or is all this derivative of the fact that uh, that a judge writing and and here we're going to get into different kinds of purposes, but but that a judge has a different purpose from a novelist, and maybe the purpose is in many instances to resolve the dispute in a way which is acceptable to the parties, and then maybe at the appellate level or at the you know level of the Supreme Court in a way which is legitimate and acceptable to a broader public. And I'm just wondering to what extent purpose implies literary quality or not, and whether this is about bad literature versus good literature, or just, you know, if if you don't have the the narrator's purpose, then it's not going to be a narrative. Yeah, so I, I think that's exactly right. The judge has a different purpose. The judge's purpose is not to entertain, not to entrance, not to keep you in suspense, not to try to use techniques that will keep you engaged by being fascinated with what's going on, but to rationalize, to justify, to legitimate. And all of us were taught in first-year legal writing and research that the best way to get a reader to assent to what it is that you're arguing is to make it as easy as possible for the reader to digest the argument. And the easiest way to do that is to lay out in advance even if only in skeletal form, the full structure of the argument, so that as the reader arrives at each step, the answer won't be, oh, wait, why is the advocate doing that, or why is the judge doing that? But, oh, yes, I see, I'm already persuaded, because it's already been explained to me why that's part of a larger argumentative structure. It's it's funny how tastes change, because, I mean, I know, I, I learned that, uh, I'm sure we still teach one else that, uh-huh. um, it, but as I've... Uh, as I've been at this longer and longer, I find it, I find there's two different ways to reassure, at least two, to reassure the reader um, that, that they should give their assent. Um, and, and one way to make it simpler and feel easier and better is that it wears on its sleeve all of the things that actually make reaching that conclusion hard and challenging, Right. Um, and maybe that's the sort of the 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 legal research article perspective rather than the judging perspective. It's I find it frustrating that judge uh, that very few judges write opinions that show that you know what this this reaching this judgment there are actually awfully good arguments on the other side and they're really difficult. They, we have to struggle with it a lot, right? Um, occasionally Breyer will write this way. Occasionally Posner will write this way. Um, uh, Souter would write this way sometimes, but most judges really seem to shy away from that. And to me, that's less persuasive. Yeah. Again, so, so I think there's a lot in what you say to be sure one could achieve the very effect that you're describing without sacrificing this conventional um, point-first form, right? So you could sort of explain your way of doing it, and then at each step along the way, contain the counter-argument, or even open the counter-argument by saying, of course, there's another way to see it, and then you sort of lay out the counter-argument, nevertheless, on balance, and then you sort of sew it back up again. (laughs) now, Now, perhaps that's a sort of cheap response, and one that many readers would find unsatisfying precisely to the extent that it emphatically neutralizes all opposition rather than treating it as live opposition. But it's at least a way of making room for the counterargument within a structure which is still governed by this whole sort of um, assumption that you're going to delineate the full skeletal nature of the argument at the outset. Maybe this shows my ignorance of, of narrative 
theory and the importance of adhering to the right terms for things. But when I think of reading a novel uh, or, or even a good piece of nonfiction, I mean, part of the reason for that is to kind of put my brain behind someone else's eyeballs, um, either because I, I want to be worn down by their experience of something familiar enough to see that, you know, someone else's experience of the familiar can be quite different from my own or to see someone who's similar to me seeing different things. And, and so I'm experiencing the unfamiliar. And the way that evolves is oftentimes fascinating. That could be fiction or nonfiction, but a good narrative kind of, tell, you know, it, it creates a kind of intellectual empathy, right? That, um, that, that you, you, you form a connection with someone else or someone like you in a, in a similar circumstance. And it does seem to me that the best kind of legal writing helps me to do that, right? And, and it helps to explain this other thing that I alluded to earlier that's, that's in your article I found fascinating. That's the, um, the, the addition of dicta and seemingly extraneous legal materials, right? That, that what is happening there is the judge is trying to say, you know, see things my way for a little bit here. We've got this conflict and either I'm trying to explain why what went, de- what, what went on below was acceptable or unacceptable, or I'm trying to explain why I'm going to give a verdict for the defendant or, or for the plaintiff in, in this case or for the prosecutor. And to understand that, you need to see this world of legal materials that I'm navigating in the way that I do. And, and for that, I start to, you know, that immediately makes me think about Dworkin and Hercules and that every, you know, legal act of writing involves an act of interpretation and adding to and creating a story that can add on to the total legal story. I don't, you're, you're nodding, John. I'm maybe, maybe not saying this super well, but um, do you agree? Yes, I think all of that's exactly right. Uh, and so it seems to me there's there's two ways of thinking about how to solicit this empathy or how to get the reader to be exposed to the perspective that you're trying to represent. And I do think those operate differently in literature and in decision writing. So in fiction, it seems to me what you say is exactly right. We're actually trying to understand a perspective, ideally um, from the perspective of the person who's experiencing it. Although it's true that in there, there's a whole array of techniques that novelists use. Sometimes they get us inside a person's perspective, and then they take us outside of it so that we can see how other people view that person. Um, sometimes in order to destabilize the very perspective that we've just been inhabiting. Sometimes just to get us to see that others are misunderstanding the person or at least seeing it in a different way than we've just in, in, been been invited to see them. Whereas it seems to me that in legal writing, even where the details are being made highly concrete and this sort of reality effect, as Bart calls it, is is made evident to us, um, often it's not so much about soliciting empathy or getting us to share a perspective. And, and even when it is, the perspective that we're being invited to share is, I think, nevertheless, much more of an analytical perspective than it is sort of identifying with a figure, seeing it through the um, through the eyes of a person who's living through a particular dilemma. So we'll occasionally be told things by judges that really do ask us to see something from a person's eyes or to um, think in an emotional way about that person's dilemma. But far more often, it seems to me, the, the details are laid out in order to get us to, to see it externally and to command our assent to agree to a particular evaluation of the situation. 
so that even if the evaluation is one that involves empathy or understanding, it's achieved through external details rather than seeing it through a person's perspective. If I could try to give a slightly more uh, a technical illustration, I'd say it's extremely common in modern fiction writing to use free and direct discourse, that is, that syntactic technique by which we're invited to think that we have direct access to somebody's mind, not through the use of quotation marks, but through the use of language that makes us feel as if we're um, hearing the character's thoughts as she thinks them. What was going to happen next? What irritating imposition were these people trying to achieve? You know, there's, there's this whole set of techniques that novelists use so that we uh, identify with the character in that way. It, it seems to me that, so, so it's obvious that we never encounter that, even in the factual summation that begins um, a judgment, nor have I been able to think of a technique that judges use that would be the legal analog of free and direct discourse. That is, it's, it's extremely rare that we're ever invited to see something from a character's perspective, uh, um, a legal actor's perspective, except in language that makes that so plain. You know, something like, well, think about it from the plainest point of view for a moment, which is a very different way of getting at it already with a, a, a sort of objective and analytical framework attached to it, I would say, as opposed to a technique that without calling attention to itself in that way, invites us to inhabit a perspective. It's true. There's a little bit of distance and, and, and maybe a little bit in this context is, is, uh, world sized. I mean, it might be small in one way, but even at, even with a small distance, it's a lot different from zero distance where, where you'll see in the, in the sort of law and economics vernacular, you'll see judges talking about the incentives various parties face and what it might be like to try to make that decision and why this legal rule is better than that legal rule because people will make decisions differently. So they talk, but, it, but it's, you're right. You're at a bit of a remove when you're, when, it, when a judge is having that. When a judge is describing that, or how will a district judge possibly apply this standard that you're arguing? Yeah, for? you know, and 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 so there are ways that that uh, just part of the professional casting of the, the discussion of legal doctrine inserts a distance, and even if it isn't very big, you know, some distance versus zero distance is a lot of distance. Yeah, I I really do think that. That's exactly the thing that I would want to put my finger on. That, that's exactly where I see the difference. It seems to me, as long as that distance is there, and as long as it's, uh, in some sense, a part of the writing form itself, there's simply not the opportunity to be lost in the narrative in the way that we like to be lost in film and fiction. I think our, our usual experience of a novel or a movie that we enjoy is that we felt so lost in it for some time that even after you're done with it, you keep thinking back to certain scenes in it. You keep thinking through how the characters were reacting to each other or how a certain thing was depicted visually. And it seems to me those are experiences that you don't have, even after you've read a judgment that you thought was wonderful, persuasive, clever, um, creative, um, uh, um, surprising in some way, the things that we appreciate about them tend always to be things that carry with them an appreciation of craft uh, um, 
coupled to that level of distance in a way that distinguishes itself from what it is that we enjoy about fiction and motivates us to enjoy fiction in the first place, to be drawn to it, to um, to want to read it uh, um, in bed at night. I, 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 I've yet to, to meet anybody who talks about law and narrative who could say with a straight face, right, you know, there's there, um, here's this, here's a decision I'd really like to read before I go to bed at night. <laughs> you know, part of it could be we're not uh, speak for myself. Uh, we're not novelists. We're not filmmakers. I mean, I wonder what it's like to yeah, be speak for yourself Joe. to be <laughs> to be Spielberg or uh, or in his day Truffaut or any of these other people watching a movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they just have a very they must have a very different experience of of that as craftspeople and we um you know we're not judges but you know i worked for a judge for a little while after law school christian did as well many lawyers do and even if you haven't done that you've you've done illegal writing before so you re you're reading the output of a person who makes things not so dissimilar from what you yourself produce and i and i think that maybe that inserts a little bit of distance as well I think all of that's right, and to me, one of the most intriguing things that we've seen recently, which which your comment sparks, are those law professors who've had successful careers as writers, Alifair Burke, Jed Rubenfeld. So to me, that's a really amazing talent because I feel like we've we've had so impressed on us the needs of the forms of legal writing that it must be a real effort to be able to craft a narrative that readers would enjoy engaging with as a literary narrative, despite having had impressed on you all of this, all, all of these <laughs> other conventions. So I really do wonder how they do it. And I have to say, I'm extremely admiring of the people who've done it well. Yeah. And I think historians have a bit, you know, you, you talk yeah. about the uh, historian, versus judge and th that analogy in the paper. And I think they, uh, in a way, they historian, people who have professional training as historians must have a kind of a leg up in a way on this. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful example. So, so it brings us back to the point about causation, which I didn't, the, the, uh, the question you raised before, which I didn't answer fully. It, it strikes me, given what you've just said, there are two fairly familiar ways of writing history. The history of, of the event in a sort of narrative way that someone like Natalie Zeman Davis does in The Return of Martin Gare, where we really are in, in, invited to be there and experience things as they occur. And the sort of conceptual or analytical or detached history, which is the kind that Recur writes about in his mm. book, Time and Narrative, and from which I get these terms, quasi-plot, quasi-narrative quasi-character, right. um, because for Recur, speaking now more about the detached analytical form, he sees the historian as being very much like the judge, arguing for a particular interpretation, arguing for a particular understanding of why that causal strain matters and what effect it had, and having to argue for it because that sort of historian understands herself to be defending a case with respect to other possible candidates and with respect to um, having to prove a case to historians who will be inspecting each move, evaluating it for persuasive evidence, etc. It, it, it was striking to me, reading the recurred text, that he takes it for granted 
that the star case of that form of explanation and embattled argumentation is that of the judge. So he doesn't actually use the judge or the judgment as an example of what he describes when he refers to quasi-plot and quasi-character. He sort of takes it for granted that, that that would be the form and then analogizes it to the historian's writing, whereas um, the notable thing is that uh, uh, people rarely do talk about judgments uh, um, and and judges in the very terms that he uses. That is, they they accept, of course, that it's embattled and argumentative and that there is a potential naysayer out there. But but the terms that he proposes, quasi-plot and quasi-character, are, um, at least as far as I'm aware, not terms that have ever been floated in, in relation to legal narrative before. And it seemed to me he really hit the nail right on the head with that one. Yeah, it strikes me that way, too. I want to I want to ask you about something that that um, kind of problematize a contrast you've drawn um, when you say that that narrative uh, and novels and, and the enjoyment of getting lost in a story and the way that contrasts. I, I, what about the, the phenomenon of rereading? Because yes. um, yeah. it seems to me that like I love um rereading novels that I love. And I think I love that in a way that's even more than I enjoyed it the first time. I love hearing some people hate spoilers, right? I'm one of those people who I love reading a complete description of a movie and then going to see the movie. Like to me, that makes it even better. Oh boy. So, um, <laughs> and Christian is, yeah, he, he's re, he's getting a hive right now. I think reacting allergically. No, there's, there's so much in what you say. So what you've just described is what people uh, who, who write on the psychology of reading call the paradox of suspense. How is it that once you've read a suspenseful narrative, you can experience it suspensefully the next time you read it. Um, so, uh, uh, paradigmatically, the work of Richard Gehrig, he's a, a psychologist who teaches on the faculty at one of the SUNY schools. He's, he's written at great length on the paradox of, sus- of suspense, but there's actually a large literature on the subject. To some extent, it remains a paradox for, for the very reason that you, for, for the very reason that you pose. How is it that even though we know the outcome, we can still experience it suspensefully? So pe- people have tried to offer various explanations, which I think I would answer by, again, going to those narrative techniques that work um, in in order to pull us in along the way. That's why we continue to find it enjoyable, because there's something about uh, the process and engagement that's created by this whole array of techniques about how chronology is jumbled up, about the use of free and direct discourse, shifting narrative perspectives, uh, the way in which a, a, a visible narrator floats in and out of the narration in a way that we don't normally encounter in legal narrative, that is, in, in, in things like judgments. So it seems to me that uh, we're, uh, um, in fact, w- one way to ask your question might be to contrast the paradox of suspense as we apparently happily experience it when when rereading novels or, or rewatching films with what I would have thought was a good counterargument to people who claim that they find it suspenseful to read judgments, namely, um, do you, as, as a rereader of a judgment that you found suspenseful the first time, still find it suspenseful the second time? My, my guess would be that it's much harder to experience that suspense, if any, right? Assuming that there was any the first time you read the judgment, <laughs> it's much harder to experience it the second time precisely because 
it lacks all of those techniques that conspire to to draw us in in the way that literary narrative does. And one other observation about um, about uh, oh oh right um, uh, um, about about spoilers and and why you don't mind spoilers. So there's there's a brilliant study that some psychologists out at UC San Diego published maybe three or four years ago. It's called Story Spoilers Don't Spoil. It's a fascinating study. So they take a series of short stories that have surprise endings or twist endings or in some way build up to an unanticipated ending. And they rewrite the stories ever so slightly by accidentally on purpose giving away the outcome somewhere early on, not by announcing it explicitly, but by adding some prose that makes it evident to the reader what the outcome will be in a sufficiently subtle way that it's again, not announcing it explicitly, but is is nevertheless fully apparent. And then they asked people to rate their enjoyment of the non-spoiled stories, and then they asked a different population, because you obviously can't expose everybody to both versions of the story that would ruin the study. What they found out was that uh, the spoiled stories not only didn't spoil the stories, readers actually liked them more. So they then speculated about possible mechanisms that would explain that, and I think that clearly is a question for further research, but it goes hand in hand, I think, with the point that you just made, which is that whatever it is that keeps us interested clearly doesn't depend entirely on the not knowing how it's going to end. And for me, that's actually further evidence in favor of what I argue, because, because my argument isn't that it all turns on literally not knowing what the result is going to be. Mm-hmm. It's on all of the techniques that are used along the way, conspiring with a set of assumptions that it's going to be suspense-driven or curiosity-driven. Is it the... Hmm. So, so what I'm wondering here is if we have... Are we trying to draw different categories and say that law stuff is in one box and and narrative as experienced in literature and film is in another box? And if we're doing that, is it primarily based on things that we observe in the communications themselves, or are we describing different processes that are going on in the brain, uh, different things going on in the audience? And I have in mind here something that most people would say is almost certainly not narrative, but but, but before we get there, I mean, how do you see the project? Is it, yeah, is it that? So, so I, um, I, I would say all of the above. I think as for the cognitive aspect of it, there has been, just in recent years, search along those lines, which I've only followed sporadically, so I don't think I could say anything terribly intelligent about it, but I do think that both of those are exactly right, that, that there's an essentially different function that narrative serves in legal explanation, which doesn't mean that it's not narrative, but it does put, I think, a burden on us to explain what's narratively significant that's left once it no longer shares that kind of kinship with literary narrative or narrative in film. Some people take me to be denying that there's any narrative going on in law. I actually think there are many fascinating narrative things going on in law. Right, right. I think you can only get at them once you've um, stopped trying to uh, stop trying to imply that it's just like literary narrative. Yeah, is there anything that's, I mean, you know, if you, are there any two books that are just alike in that respect, right? I mean, I, I think you identify a kind of a characteristic purpose or a characteristic set of purposes which are disparate between novels and between legal opinions and, and between different kinds of legal opinions and different kinds of legal briefs. 
But if we zoom out to the level of, I'm trying to get you to see the world my way, I want you at least to see the world my way, uh, that, that does seem to be a, a kind of similar, a similar function of at least many authors of what you would conventionally recognize as, as narratives, and many, although not all, again, judges who are explaining their judgments. And indeed, and this is where I was going to go with this, uh, a mathematician writing down a proof. Yeah. which many would say is definitely not a narrative. Yeah. But I, I wonder about that. Um, and, you know, in my latest paper, I talk about Paul Erdős. I've told you this story before, right, Joe? About, um, so the famous mathematician wrote a bunch of papers. I think we talked about co-wrote tons yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. There's an Erdős number, all that stuff. You don't need to know any of that. But the, the uh, at, at the lecture I went to one time from him, uh, he told this story, which I guess is now uh, famous, that, that basically God maintains a book, is the way he would describe it. And in this book, are the real reasons for things, basically the real reasons why certain mathematical statements are true. And so he would call some proofs like the book proofs of a statement, like there's no biggest prime number. You can, you, there are all kinds of ways to prove these things. And, but some of them feel like that's, that's really why. This is really why this like is that's true. that's the one. That's the one. And, 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 and so I try to describe this, you know, to people who aren't mathematicians and haven't done a lot of proofs before. You know, it's kind of like you get, you can get from A to B in a town, you know, get from where you are to the grocery store and someone can give you directions and you can follow them. You can get there and get there. And yet still, you, you, you know, you can't deny because you got from A to B that indeed you can get from A to B, that there is a route between them. <laughs> but there are other ways of giving directions where as you do it, you, you realize what that route really is. Like you, you say, oh, I know, I now know how to get from A to B, right? Rather than just that there is a connection. Um, and some proofs are, are like that, right? And so instead of being like a brute force attack, it's the it's the this is the elegant way right. to connect these. You two can things. read some proofs and, and you get to the end and you say, yeah, every step is correct. This this proof is correct, right? In some sense. I mean, we can problematize what it is, right. right? But we're not going to do that. Uh, and there are other proofs you read them and say, oh, now I know why there's no biggest prime. Like I understand not just that there is no biggest prime, but I understand why really why there's no biggest prime number. And that's kind of what he referred to as as the book proof. And it seems to me the goal in writing a what a mathematician would call a beautiful proof or the best proof is to help another person to see the world, the world of of, of numbers, of sets, of uh, you know, of categories through their eyes. Right? Which seems and I wonder if what's going on in the brain is not a similar kind of thing. Like now I know the real story. So is that what you think judges are doing in appellate judgments? I think some do, right? I, I think it depends on your attitude in writing. Like if, if cause you could certainly write uh, an appellate opinion that says uh, the judgment below is incorrectly entered reversed, right? <laughs> you could do yeah, more. We're not talking about those though. Well, we're talking I mean, about ones that judgments that try to. I only illustrate it as an extreme along a spectrum. Like if your attitude is my job is to decide cases. Yeah. And uh, if I've decided a case, I've, I've done my job. Yeah. That's a very different attitude than then my job is to not only explain to the litigants, but to the public, you know, why the law is the way that it is and why I've applied it the way that I have in this case. And I want you now, I'm going to write something down that takes you through my thinking, that helps you see the world through my eyes. And I'm wondering if that process is not inherently in the brain narrative in the same way that a novel is. And and, and you may, again, you may object and say, even if it is the same kind of cognitive process, that cognitive process is actuated through very different means. And there's a, there's a use in specifying a difference between a, like a literary narrative actuation of that cognitive process and a more coldly analytical actuation of that process. So I don't know. I mean, you know, um, 
it's just it, it occurs to me that the things that people kind of oftentimes assume are not narratives feel like a narrative when you are kind of embedded in that culture. Yeah, I, again, I think that's a tremendously provocative point. So it's often assumed by people who write in this area that the sort of proof-oriented or, or the more stripped-down proof-oriented form uh, is not narrative, and that's what needs to be contradistinguished uh, contra against narrative. So so recur when, when he writes about causation, he says that um, the reason why he wants to use this term quasi-narrative is that uh, in historical writing, it welds together two things, namely um, understanding, which is what he thinks is produced primarily through narrative, and proof, which he would analogize, and he would actually treat the mathematical uh, material as, as a paradigmatic instance of something that's proof. And it's exactly that form, what he calls singular causal imputation, which welds the two and makes it quasi-narrative. So it's not full narrative, but it's also not not narrative, and it's not proof, which is the thing that he gets from math. Whereas I think what you say uh, there's there's a lot in there. There's there's a wonderful book anthology that the Princeton Press published a few years back called Circles Disturbed. It's a collection of essays, some of which talk about math in relation to narrative, and I really think there's a lot of fascinating material there to be discerned. I would argue that there is a cognitively different mode of engagement with the two, I think, simply because as long as we're approaching um, a demonstration or an explanation with a critical and evaluative eye, and that's what we understand to be appropriate to the occasion, was that move properly legitimated? Um, how do they get from one thing to the next? As long as we're, we're looking at each step askance in the way that we're invited to do when we read a judgment and we, when we read a mathematical proof, I'm inclined to think that there's a cognitively different um, set of competencies that are, that are being recruited for that, um, for that exercise. And I, I'm inclined to think that if we did some experiments, probably they, um, they have been done and probably there's, there's some literature on it. But, but it seems to me, um, you rightly suggest that one could, in a way, be lost in a proof. And to the extent that that's possible, that you, one one would either have to, you know, deny what I just said, or figure out um, <laughs> some other way that one could be lost besides being lost by being um, immersed in perspective. Generations but, of students have been lost in math proofs, so this would be nothing. <laughs> well, new. you know, but not in the that, way that you one described. thing that might bridge these two domains is the and the a thing I think. From my own personal experience, I would say they have in common, but the sort of the more traditional narrative domain and and something like a mathematical proof or a, or a, a highly persuasive appellate opinion is is the the sort of or the, or like a journal article in chemistry or something. Yeah, which, you there, know. there's this sort of t these strands of aesthetic an aesthetic sensibility and the and the connection there is with a, mor a moral sensibility. Um, and this might be sort of a. a sort of a, the Kantian heritage that these two things are connected. Um, but I think they bridge that, that aesthetic and moral sensibility kind of bridges, right? We have responses like that to both these domains of, of a traditional narrative and, and a math proof or a science proof. Um, the, our, our sense of beauty and what connection we think that may or may not have to the, our sense of right 
um, that both these kinds of stories can trigger quite fully th- that thing. Um, maybe that's the bridge between them. I mean, yeah. for me, I certainly have experienced that in both these contexts. No, I find that very persuasive, and and I was actually I'm glad to hear you give the example of the no uh, the um the no highest prime number because my only experience of such proofs was in a wonderful course that I took when I was an undergraduate in in number theory with this brilliant Danish mathematician Asger Abo, and over and over again I would experience these flashes of pleasure as, right. as there would be this creative what, what what seemed to me to be a creative twist in in some proof to do with number theory uh i i guess it seemed to me at the time that what was fascinating about the twist was that it exhibited an ingenuity in a way of thinking which itself seemed transposable to other proofs that is not that exact move imitated but but the mindset that underlay the move that 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 made the proof work, so that it seemed to sort of open up a whole world of of other clever, similarly designed moves. Right. And maybe that also speaks to the um what 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 you're describing as the bridge between the two. Whereas, I, so I don't know if you've had this experience, but if you've ever tried reading a civil law judgment, they tend to sort of operate in that QED mode. You know. Um, Here's the assertion, you know, it's applied here. Of course, it generates this result. They're very terse. They're very proof-like in a way that, um, to my eyes, lacks that creativity, lacks that twist, right? They're they're not sort of showing their work. They're announcing the output of their work. And I, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this piece, but there's a wonderful article that Mitch Lesser, who teaches on the Cornell Law faculty, published a while ago on these French civil law judgments. And what he shows is that there's, they actually come in two forms, rapport and dossier. Oh, Darcy. Darcy is a guest with us yeah. um, in, oh, yeah. in person, and she loves to bark. All right. Well, 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 well she seemed to like that distinction. <laughs> so, um, so one of them, I forget which, I guess, I guess rapport are the published, um, uh, published opinions. But, but these dossiers, if only you could get your hands on them, are, are like bench memos or like opinions that we're familiar with in the common law context. Ah. So it turns out that underlying the QED proof is indeed something much more familiar to us that explains things in, in, in a way that we might find more persuasive precisely because we're used to that mode of explanation instead. Uh, it would be kind of weird to think about, I mean, one thing judgments are not is explanations like truly subjective explanations about you know what it was like to be the person who had the experience of having to reach this judgment uh they have portions of it that are that way but it, i think if it read that way in a, in some biographical sense it would feel pretty weird yeah that that's exactly right so so a question i often like to ask myself as i read things that i find interesting about how judgments are put together a question i ask is so if a novelist did this, you know, uh, what would people think? And often the answer is, if a novelist did this, people would think it was the most out there meta, uh, metafictional piece of fiction there is. Because we take for granted all sorts of things that judgments do, that the judges do in judgment writing, that would be flat out bizarre in fiction writing. But, but as you're observing, the same is true vice versa. So, so the one thing a judge mayn't do is use any trait that opens the judge up to the accusation that she's being arbitrary. 
And it seems to me that a judge who did what you describe would in some sense be, be accused of precisely that. Well, well, it's it seems like well, so you could imagine a novel. Uh, I don't know if it'd be any good, but uh, and maybe maybe it already maybe it already exists. But suppose I wrote a novel that was a series of ten judicial opinions by a, an appellate judge, just one. I'm after, loving just, the sound of this, which is one, one after the other, <laughs> and and there's nothing personal in it, right? But if you read the the opinions one after the other, you realize it's a story of a judge going mad. Uh, this is genius, and. But but there's again it's never referring. Do they have to, to go mad? Why not just a judge hanging it could, out? It could this, be anything. It could, okay. Right. It could, well, if it's just hanging out, then maybe you don't. You know, you the, don't the quite point, make the connection. Right, the, yeah. the, the connection here, though, is that the the purpose of uh, uh, that the novelist has in in writing these ten opinions one after the other, right, is different than the purpose that the judge has in writing a single one right. of those opinions, even if they would be exactly the same, and. Is there anything more to this distinction than one of purpose? I know we're coming full circle back to where I started, and, yeah. and maybe I'm annoying you yeah. guys because I've missed something, but I wonder if no, that's really the no, nugget of it. No, there, uh, there's not. I just love it. I mean, it seems to me, um, arguably, arguably, there is no other distinction than purpose. I, I rather think that um, a novelist would find it difficult to do what you're describing without planting here and there a number of things in the judgments that to someone who normally reads judgments would seem bizarre, right? Um, that, that it would just be, it, it would be hard to pull off in a way such that the judgments really read just like a, a, appellate judgments or, or trial-level judgments for that matter, uh, um, in a way that would register as completely familiar without any bizarre... Um, well, yeah, but th this, would, this would be the test of the author's genius, though, right? That, yeah. that if you took any one of them in isolation and you put them in front of someone, they would say, oh, yeah. I don't, there's nothing yeah. here, right? This is just a judgment, right? right? Yeah, so uh, that's exactly right. In any way, uh, my, my point is a quite minor quibble. I mean, the fact is, what you described could be done. And if it were done, that would, I would contend, be the sole difference. I, I have to add, there's, there's a wonderful novel which, though not quite what you describe, is not so far off from it. It's called This Ever-Diverse Pair by, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Barfield, Owen Barfield. He published it under a pseudonym in the early 1950s. He was a pal of C.S. Lewis's. It's been reprinted recently. It's the story of two lawyers in a law firm and their adventures. And there's a way in which what happens in the course of the novel parallels what you describe it's it's a wonderfully written novel it's a pleasure to read it's certainly not written in the form of judgment so so it sort of misses your your major premise there are fictions that are written um i aren't they called epistolary novels that are written in the form of yeah. letters yeah you know what so so that's also a wonderful analogy i'm gl i'm glad you mentioned that that was an incredibly popular form say in the last quarter of the 18th century it sort of fizzled out in the early 19th century Every once in a while, somebody writes one um, these days, as won't surprise you, it's now been done in email. Um, right. but, um, but that's that is also a great analogy. The usual complaint about epistolary novels is that um, they don't read like real letters because, you know, things have to be said in order to make things available to the reader. Right. That writing a letter to their best friend wouldn't normally say. But um, it is a great analogy. And in fact, you know, in in a great article that came out ages ago um, by John Lubsdorf, 
very briefly in a paragraph or two, he offers the epistolary novel as one of the possible literary analogs for judicial opinions. Still, I think what you've described is so brilliant that somebody must do it. It is a fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a much more satirical. Uh, it's it, and it, I guess it's epistolary in a sense. But um, so a few years ago, uh, it it was published. It's called Dear Colleagues, and it's in the form of a series of memoranda yeah, and recommendation that's... letters by someone who works in an English department, I think, or is it an English department or a uh, maybe it's an art department? I can't remember. It's a department at a university. Um, and if you if if you're like any of the three of us, meaning a professor at a university, um, it is just a howl a minute. <laughs> I mean, it, this thing is so funny, uh, and, and it uh, it's a narrative it's, composed of things which are not themselves wouldn't be narratives on their own, but by the way, it's collected. You yeah, the, it's yeah, the the yeah, series yeah. of letters because it's it's nothing but a series yeah. of memoranda and letters uh, to co- or memos to colleagues. Um, and and it and it do, it's sort of funny, Christian, that you said it is sort of person losing their mind because you you do get the sense through this that this per the wheels are really coming off right. for this person, and it takes place over the course of a calendar year. Um, but I would recommend that to anyone who who wants to have a send up of what it's like to be a university professor. Can we it hit? Can, fantastic. Can we hit one more point? Um, yeah. That that um, you made in the in the piece. Uh, maybe we, I hope we're not retreading ground here, but w- one of the points I found really interesting was the, uh, the way in which a doctrinal legal judgment includes, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but, but, but mentions dicta and, and goes, you know, basically talks about more law than it needs to in order to reach the judgment. Although needs to is an ambiguous term there. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons you identify for that, of course, is that the judge is trying to demonstrate authority. Um, I imagine that's not the only reason though, right? I mean, is it, in other words, the judge is trying to demonstrate mastery of the subject, whereas a, a novelist inc- includes stray facts in order to demonstrate verisimilitude. And, and that you might actually see people, you know, uh, if you're trying to prep someone on the witness stand, it, it can be helpful to say, I remember that the, that I was wearing white that day or something like that, right? Which, you know, people, re- you know, it helps to kind of bolster the credibility, although someone who's sufficiently malevolent will add in fake stray facts in order to make that work. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this or not, but I, I found that interesting, you know, that this is another, this is a lens on the use of dicta that I hadn't really considered before. And I started to consider it the minute that I thought about law as narrative, uh, even though this is, you know, it's either quasi-narrative or not narrative, according to these different categories, thinking about what the author's purpose was in establishing whatever it is the author was trying to do you immediately see, well, yeah, you don't have to mention, you know, this, I don't know. Does that make any sense? I'm kind of talking myself out of having a point here at all, but Joe, you look quizzical. Well, what it reminds me of, and the, and the thing that, um, I mean, I, I, I found that part of the paper, this legality effect versus the reality effect. Yeah, that's, I found that to be very, yeah, a very yeah. compelling uh, observation. I think the, 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 the the, I think what I brought to that discussion myself before fr- from before was simply I think there is a you know the law as a seamless web conception back to Dworkin again that I think we that that I think a lot of lawyers and judges ha- have they, they they have some level of belief in and I think a, a discussion in an opinion kind of participates in that right, right? It, it it shows it and in showing it participates in it 
there's a way in which, yeah, this trying to resolve your case requires me to mention these other things about the law. And that's not surprising because after all, the law is a seamless web. I it mean, does no one seem says like, that. But. It does seem like, like Dworkin's local priority idea for Hercules, right, that you – you're going to, you know, exercise fit and justification and you're going to build out a story of the law that makes sense. And the reason this opinion is right, the reason this decision is right is not only because it fits with what came before, but that it forms the best explanation of at least this local area of law, right? And in order to do that, you've got to talk about the things yeah. to which your opinion is connected and not just the opinion itself. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. So so you've actually articulated it in in a way different from what I offered, or, or at least pursued expressly in the paper, but I think that's a fantastic point. So I, I begin with the stuff out of Bart, the, um, the, the reality effect, and he says, why is it that we're told in novels, you know, that the clock looked like it was a little bit muddy and there were, you know, six salt cellars on the counter or whatever? Why are we told those things except that it was true? It's not needed for the plot, it's not needed for the thematics, it's needed so that um, the reader will see it and say, oh, well, that just makes me believe all the more in the truth of the story that's being narrated, even though, of course, the reader knows that it's a fiction. So, so it's there to license this implication, this, this perception that it's all perfectly realistic. And, and from there, as you observe, I try, to, I try to ask, okay, so how would the reality effect work in, in law? And what might be a homegrown legal analog of it? this legality effect. And, and I think the, the point that you give about, about the web and um, the difficulty that the judge has in resisting or the desire that the judge has in elaborating all of the other ways in which it connects to and turns out to be verified by and consistent with connected legal ideas, that seems to me exactly right. So so in the paper, I tried to pin down a couple of stylistic traits that I see as consistent with this legality effect. In the U.S., and, and you can see this unfolding over time, there's this obsession with quoting small bits of language, three or four or ten word phrases from some other judgment, even for things that everyone knows are perfectly true, and often for things that don't require to be proved at all. In Canadian judgment writing, it, it's a rather different trait where they love to quote three or four pages uninterrupted from another <laughs> judgment at a time. And often by the time they're done, you just wonder, well, why did they do that? Because they actually don't seem to be doing very much with it. So <laughs> me, those are both sort of helpful instances of how something's become conventional within judgment writing in each of these jurisdictions that conspires with the legality effect. But I think your way of elaborating it with respect to dicta, I, I think that's a wonderful explanation of what it is that prompts a lot of dicta in a way that is um, quite consistent with the point that I was trying to make. In fact, um, what I'm now regretting is I don't have time to revise the paper and, and, and talk about dicta that way, because I think that would be a great way to supplement that point. I completely agree with you. Yeah, there are always more papers you can write. Yeah, exactly. Be- <laughs> it also, it's interesting how it, how it makes the present tense Yes. Make sense. The, yes. the, the Dorkinian point that you made, Christian, yeah. and, uh, um, or the seamless web concept that, that it's, of course, it's in the present tense because it's, um, and this is a, the sort of, uh, the evocation of the brooding omnipresence from the 19th century, the, 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 that aspect of it that I think is still with us, that there is a sense in which we, it's convenient at least to think of law as a reality subsisting on its own 
that we revisit and and we can take a snapshot of a portion of it a local right. portion of it um but but it has a permanence that's, that's there whether we're portion. around yeah. or not right? well it's a seamless web where the spider is still alive and it's continuing to ramify and unfold i think that's exactly right yeah wow this has been extremely cool yeah and you know i uh, yeah <laughs> another episode where you know we've done a couple of episodes on on law and narrative we had one with uh, lisa kern griffin which was fun and it's a topic that just when you think you've you've seen it all you realize well there's so much more to learn yeah and, and the thing i'm going to be thinking about a lot is this historian uh, judge connection. I think that's especially uh, sort of fertile territory in my own mind that I'm, I've been thinking about. So, so I'm going to keep thinking about it. That's a shout out to have Logan Sawyer back on. And there it? you go. Yeah, let's put oh, some yeah. pressure. Let's put some pressure on that guy to come back on. We'll, <laughs> now that we've got some new stuff to talk about. But this is Simon. This has been absolutely fantastic, and and thanks for agreeing to uh, to talk to us today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it tremendously.